playing the playback and it's all calm. And when that chorus came in, Brad Pitt jumped up and did 360 and went, what? And that's the reaction we wanted, right? Yeah. That was, yeah. He was a huge fan. He was a great friend and a huge fan. And he loved, loved, loved that song. People ask me all the time when I do interviews, who's your favorite artist or what's your favorite record or performance you've ever done? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I recorded over 300 million records sold and I've toured all over the place. So that's impossible. I mean, there's no freaking way I'm going to sit there and go, this is my favorite experience. But I will say to people, well, can I name the top three? And they go, yeah, well, today, and this is the truth, today, one of those top three people are my guests today. Now, this amazing woman, look, she's an amazing singer, amazing songwriter. But more importantly to me, I love this person because she's one of the most beautiful, down-to-earth, amazing, heartfelt, blissful, cool people I've ever met, Not let alone record and perform with. Now, she's had, let me see if I get this right, five platinum records, and three of them were multi-platinum, just so you might understand this, that platinum in the USA is a million records sold. All right, so she was also nominated 15 Grammys and won two Best Female Vocal Performances. Now, this is the cool part. One of those records I was on was her best selling record or did the best in the charts, like on Billboard. Billboard is the big kahuna. That's the one you want to be on. There people say, yeah, I've had, you know, 20 number one hit singles, but not necessarily on Billboard. Billboard is the big one. Her record, this record, Your Little Secret, went to number six. Now, you have to understand, if you're in the top 10, you're competing with, like, it could be Elton John, The Stones, uh, it could be The Police. You know, you're competing with everybody. This record went to number six, and I'm so excited that I was part of that, you know? So I'm, I'm here at Uncommon Studios LA. That's my studio right here. And I want to bring out this amazing woman to join me on this podcast, Melissa Etheridge. Get it off! Woo! The monster. I want to come over. And that's why I don't sing. (laughs) All right, all right. Let's just get right to it. I'm going to say this, and then you talk. Kansas City Chiefs, you can dislike us. You can talk (laughs) us down, but you're going to have to deal with the Kansas City Chiefs. (laughs) That was amazing. I mean, I was thinking about you the whole time. Everybody got to realize that. Melissa and I both love football, and we always talk about football. She's, she grew up in Leavenworth, Kansas, so football was a big thing. And tell everybody, I mean, your dad was into football. Yeah. See, my dad was, he was a high school basketball and football coach. From when I can remember, he, he was cheering for the Kansas City Chiefs. We'd watch it every Sunday. And when you grow up with something like that, and then when I was, you know, like nine years old, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, and so that just cemented it. And then 50 years of suffering, (laughs) you know, and so, and, you know, Chiefs have always, I mean, you know, football has always been a huge passion of mine. And when I met you and we started working together and then it was like, oh, this guy likes football and, and we're still in touch, usually mostly over football, more so than music is, is, you know, you and me. So I just, I love people that love football and, oh, my God, you got me a signed football helmet in, like, 2000, 
something early 2000s. Yeah, we've just, you know, you're, you're just fantastic. <laughs> well, you know what? Because, you know, I'm a Colts fan because I became very good friends with the owner of the Colts, Jim Merzik. And, you know, eventually we had to go to Kansas. I remember walking into that stadium, the sea of red. I mean, it's intimidating. And I remember I heard way up there in one of the seats up there, Kenny Aronoff, what are you doing here? I'm like, what? But I could go on the, on the uh, sidelines with the team. Back then, I could actually be next to the bench. But that stadium, which I'm sure you've been in, it's, it's insane. It's have, you ever, so, have you ever done the national? Yes, I did the national anthem in uh, 2018. Yeah, at the beginning of 2019, I think it was, for the playoffs for the AFC Championship. Wow. wow. We, unfortunately, we lost to Tom Brady and the Patriots. Yeah. And it was, I mean, one, it was freezing cold, but it, it was so, the. it's hard to explain the feeling of that many fans, the way that the stadium is built, and it's just all that sound just... Yeah. It's coming right to you right there in the middle. It's 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 really a thrill. I've sung uh I've sung about three times the, the anthem there. Yeah. You know what? I, I think I saw it and I was thinking, you know, I'm such a fan of yours. And that's not an easy song to sing. Oh God, no. How many octaves is it? I mean it's a bazillion all... octaves. It's frightening yes. because because you know, when I go out there, I have a belief in the national anthem that you should just sing it. That they just that's all. I don't have any backing tracks. I come out there. I, I don't even have like a tuning, uh, like a note to give me. Uh, in my head, I'm just saying start. I'm saying start low. Start low. <laughs> because 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 on the rock, glare. You're never going to hit the bombs bursting in air. You know, and you just you've got to do. It. And if you mess up the national anthem, that's on your record for life, man. You you for can't life. ever get out from under that. So. People ask me if I get nervous. I'm like, ah, oh, no, not when I'm, you know, playing on stage. But man, the national anthem will terrify me every time. You're so exposed. You're so exposed, yeah. and everybody knows that song. Yeah, no, they're not there to see me sing the national anthem. They're there to see their team win. They could crush you in a second. And the Chiefs, when you sing the national anthem at Arrowhead, you know, on the land of the free and the home of the, and the whole stadium goes, Chiefs, right? <laughs> it's, so, it's so disrespectful and everything, but you have to understand they're going to do that. And so when I went out to sing, I said, should I sing and the home of the Chiefs? And they said, no, no, no. I said, okay, so I'll just, and the home of the, and I just left it blank and I let them sing Chiefs. And then I went yeah. brave at the end. <laughs> That's so cool. Hey, you know, so to pivot into the music thing. So, you know, as a drummer, and I, you've probably heard me tell you this. So as a drummer, you know, playing the hi-hat, to me, the hi-hat's the most important because it's the rhythm. It's like a click track. Or the ride cymbal. And then the next thing is the backbeat. So people will say to me, so if I get that locked in, in my world, you know, all my hands and feet are going with that hi-hat. So people will say to me, so most important instrument you play with in the band is the bass, right? Nope, 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 nope. It's the rhythm guitar because rhythm guitar, it's like snare drum and hi-hat. And if I get the snare drum and hi-hat locked up with rhythm guitar, the whole band is now glued. So I want to tell everybody, Melissa Anthony is top three rhythm guitar players that I've ever yeah! played with. And I'm not kidding. And you remember I used to say, what? Yeah. What? We, you know, and who also is up there? Yeah, one another one is up there is Joe Satriani and Tony oh, yeah. Iommi from Sabbath. Tony doesn't play rhythm. I mean, I, I love being in those three. Yes, wow. You have to understand, 
Heath, it's Sorry, way you, back. <laughs> you and I are just going to talk over each other this whole time because yeah. nobody talks like you and me. So <laughs> the first time when I would play with you in my ears, the loudest thing in my ears was my guitar, my voice, and your hi-hat and your snare and your kick drum. Because if those things were locked, nobody's stopping us. And there were yeah. times you and I would get on such a, we would get on such a, you know, because, you know, we would always do the song and then we would open it up. And because I always love to just be open to improvisation or, you know, something happening in the moment. And we would play. And there were times you would you would freaking read my mind. Right. I'd do something when we, we'd all of a sudden stop at the same time. And then, wow. And then we hit go back. And when we hit these magical things, it was there's just nothing, nothing like that. Oh, I loved it. I'll tell you, man. And, and the first time I met you, it's actually a funny story because. Were you on a three and a half year tour, pretty much straight or with some breaks when, uh, yeah, yes, I am. And then you would try to do your little secret record, okay, like while you were off tour. In between, yeah. Never yeah. So I lived in Indiana and I would, back then when there were budgets, I just, they'd fly me into LA. I'd come fly, you know, into a studio the day I landed. Anyway, I walk into, a it was A&M back then, studios. I walked through the doors and. In the hallway, as soon as I walked in, is John Shanks, that was uh, your guitar player, and Hugh Padgham, who was your producer. I walked through the door and they burst out laughing. I'm like, well, that's kind of like, <laughs> what are you laughing? They were laughing at me. I'm like, I'm like, I'm, you know, I was younger and I was like, what's so funny? Here's the bottom line. So you're making your record, your little secret, and it had a lot of rock to it. And Hugh pulled John out. John, was he co-producing or just in the band? He just helped. He was in the band, but he was learned. This is where John really learned to produce. He's he's now a Grammy, you know, winning producer. Amazing. But he really learned a lot from Hugh and that album that we did. He learned so much. And Hugh really leaned on him. And I bet what you, about you're about to say is they were saying, man, we need a drummer that really can rock this. Because I remember they're saying, look, we need to we need to just pound this thing home. And And the drummer I was using was a wonderful guy. He just... I had gotten him before everything went big for Yes, I Am. Yeah. And, and we were going to be playing, you know, arenas now. And I bet what they said was like, we need someone. And bam, in you walked. <laughs> okay. And as I walked in, they, John said, Kenny Aronoff. And then they turned around and there I appeared. It was like the Messiah. And that's what they were laughing at. But I didn't know until two weeks later, she said, uh, can I have your number? And I went, oh, cool, Hugh Pageant, what's my number? He called me up and he said, would you like to do a Melissa Etheridge record? Now, when I saw you on MTV, because you were one of the, you know, real big on MTV, especially during the Yes, I Am record, I immediately went, I love this girl's energy. Oh, my God. Boy, do I relate to her. And so I was already a huge fan. And, of course, your songwriting is iconic. So I come in and the first song, I went into the vocal booth. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were going to play the song for me. You were in the vocal booth, and I'm sitting on the floor, and you're playing, I want to come over. You're playing it. You're playing the verses. You're down, and all of a sudden, bam, that chorus. You couldn't have teed up a chorus more <laughs> better. Because, you know, it's kind of like, but and then and it was like, wow. I was going... I was going like a monkey jumping up and down. And okay, so once I got over all of that, I write everything out. We go start recording. Now, for the people who don't know, understand the process, 
a singer, you know, they're going to save their voice and, you know, they play a couple times and then they record it and then they go in the control room and we play to the vocal track and the click track. Now, Melissa, every oh. take was like stadium take after take. If I didn't have a click track, I would have lost time because I was so excited. You were so motivating. You were so passionate. You were living every moment. And that, not every singer does it. I have to say, man, that's incredible. I started out playing in bars, right? For uh, Since I was 12, I've been playing in bars. And then when I came to L.A., I got a, a job outside of L.A. And I was playing five nights a week, four hours a night. Just, you know, killing it, killing it, just just loving it, learning, growing. So when I got in the studio, I didn't know any of those like, oh, you're supposed to save yourself, you know, little things. I was like, no, I want the performance of the song to feel like a performance in a big stadium. And so each time I absolutely just gave it like that because... That's as exciting as I can make a record. And even then, yeah. I still didn't make my records as much fun as they are as I am live. People constantly tell me, you're, you're so much better live. I'm like, you know, I, I've always, <laughs> I, but I tried my best to make the live performance. And, and each, each track was recorded live, 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 live. And I just always did it that way. And you were so much fun to play with, so much fun. Do you remember when we played, I think before that record, you and I played the Elvis tribute down in Memphis with Don yeah. was, and that's the first time I played with you and it was burning love. And I went to that double time and you clicked it up and I was like, Whoa, this guy is amazing. And, and so you were on my radar then. I forgot about that. You're right. That's what we played first. You know, I'll tell you though, it's so motivating. I mean, you know, I'm a very excitable guy. So when yeah. I, I feel that from you, it, you bring 150% out of me. It was like, and I always say this, and I'm sure you'll agree, you got to match your singer with your drummer. You can't have a weak drummer and a powerful singer or a powerful drummer and a weak singer. Yeah. It's just, yeah. And so I always tell people, you and I are so matched with passion and power. And okay, this one song that, what was it? Is it I Could Have Been You? I Could Have Been one? You. Okay. Yes. So I'm going to tell me. Yeah. So, so we're doing these songs for Your Little Secret. And John was always, John Shanks is just a, just a creative genius. The man's amazing. Yeah. And he, he was always trying to songwrite. And I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. But he brought me this piece of music that was very, this was 1995. And it was very kind of mid-90s alternative. It was just this cool, like really cool verse and then bang and chorus. And I went, wait a minute, that I like. And I grabbed that and I put this uh, kind of a social song about us and our differences and how, hey, I could have been you and you could have been me and one small thing that, and the thing was, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to record one little part, the soft part, and then go back and record the big part. I wanted the dynamics to be there from us live, that we we play soft and then we go 150% all the way through the chorus and then slam right back down into the soft part. And you looked at me and you're like, all right, I'm up for it. And man, you. but in this day and age of Pro Tools, you know, yeah. now people would just cut that up and just, you know, make it. But we played that. And you were just masterful at that. You were amazing. 
Dude, so in order to do that, I had a deep wood snare drum on my left and I would play in the center of the drum. I usually hit the hoop to get the crack. And it, I remember it was like being in a movie and it was like, blank. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't raise you out. I couldn't raise you out. Okay, now, do you remember in a playback, Brad Pitt came there. Oh, yeah. He was doing that movie, Seven, and was it Gwyneth Paltrow was there? Yeah. Yes, his girlfriend, Gwyneth Paltrow, yes. Yeah. So, it's all, we're playing the playback, and it's all calm. And when that chorus came in, Brad Pitt jumped up and did a 360 <laughs> and went, what? <laughs> and that's the reaction we wanted, right? Yeah. That was. Yeah. I know. It was, he, he was a huge fan. He was a great friend and a huge fan. And he loved, loved, loved that song. And he loved that I asked him to come visit. I always thought, you know, it's funny. As an artist, we kind of get, people want to describe us in one way. And on that song, it's if I was trying to push into that sort of, you know, alternative, grungy kind of world that, you know, I, I was never uh, considered part of. But, um, you know, I just make my music and I love that song. Dude, you, you, everybody's got to listen to that. You've got to listen to it because there's an incredible bridge section. And then at the end, I mean, just spilling your guts out. <laughs> you know, I mean, and we're improvising. That was a cool thing. Every take was different because we'd be just, I was doing all these fills. Another example, thank God there was a click because yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I would have taken off. You were doing Phil's unknown demand on that. It was amazing. But you motivated me. You were screaming your guts out and it affected me. It affected me. You know, I mean, it really did. I mean, that's one of the greatest recording moments of my life. And thank God you wanted to do it as a performance because it was very emotional, and especially going from the course and coming back down. It was like, I was like in a, in a movie uh, or, or some sort. I was living something, an experience that was incredible. And I feel like it got captured on that. It literally got captured because when I listen to it now, I go, my God, I could feel what I was feeling back then. There's another track that, that you did for me, very similar to that. It was so wonderful because you were willing to sit out for almost the entire song. And that's on my uh, breakdown album. It's the song called Scarecrow. I had just, there's 1999 and, and it was the first time I started like working with loops and things. And so we had this kind of, you actually created this loop and we played to it for the, almost the entire song until the yeah. very last chorus, you know, all in the name. And you come in with your full kit and you play this fill and you kill like, I mean, Talk about tracks you need to listen to. The very end of Scarecrow from the Breakdown album, you go off, you get out of, not, you're in time, but you're not, you know, you, you, we've lost the one and you're playing. And I told you, I said, I just want you to play until it's like you're falling apart and you just, and you just kind of slowly, slowly dissipated this, and the song just kind of falls into this chant. And it's just, I mean, for a drummer to, yeah, I'll sit out the entire song until the very end. It was really amazing. And you know, live, what I did was I took that loop that I created. And for, for those who don't know what loops are, like I'd record like uh, a little snare, the, the snare drum with a little, I don't know, some metal thing. Then I'd record a shaker, 
and then maybe a floor tom and, and the engineer would like do all these treatments. Then we mash it together and you got this crets a mood and I put it into a machine live and I would hit a pad and start it uh, so we'd have it live and I play along with it. Then when I finally came in, it was like, it was, it was like you, you said, I got, do you ever get this? People will say like, all right, what was your favorite number one experience performing? And I just go, are you kidding me? Where do you begin? But yeah. I got one. I started thinking about since we, uh, we were going to talk and hang out. There's one of the greatest performances in my life, iconic, and you were there. Okay. And I know, and you're going to probably agree. I'm not going to say it's the number one, but it was very heavy on many levels. It was honoring Janice Joplin. 2005, the Grammys. the Grammys. Yep. Okay. Let me tee this up for everybody, unless you want to tell the story. I'll tell the story. Well, it was my year of life changing and I had I've been diagnosed with cancer and we were supposed to be on tour. And, you know, it, so we had to cancel tour. And I went through months of chemotherapy and I lost my hair. I was bald and but I learned so much. And I'm now 18 going on my 19th year of cancer free. It's yeah, I'm just very I'm very healthy. So it's all good. But at the time, you know, I had been gone. I hadn't done and I hadn't had a single performance, hadn't been, even been seen in public. And then I show up at the Grammys and I'm bald and, and we're paying. They, they called and, you know, I was like, oh, it, when they called and asked me to do it, I thought, well, I'm going to be bald. Oh, gosh, you know, I don't know. But then I didn't want anyone else to do it. So I'm like, yeah, I got to do it. I, you know, I, I'd be so disappointed if I didn't. So you guys uh, actually, it was kind of a mashup of you and Philip and Mark and then some uh, members of Joss Stone's band because she was also, she sang uh, Cry Baby. Cry, Cry, Cry Baby. Baby. She, she sang that. And so she sings it and then she calls uh, me out and I didn't know what to expect. And we were all, it was just this kind of crazy thing. But the the audience was so warm, much warmer. I mean, because Grammy audiences can be so jaded because yeah. it's all industry people, you know, and, and it was such a warm reception. And to this day, I still get people saying, oh, that performance meant so much. And it was, it was probably, that's one of my top, like you said, yep. top three performances I ever did. And, and, uh, you were, oh, you're, I, I love it. Cause whenever you watch the film, you're, you're right there behind me playing and hitting peace of my heart, man. Well, I, I want to add to that. First of all, you're right. The audience stood up and Chris Christopherson was crying. Yeah. He was a poor man. So we're honoring Janice Joplin who, and that was one of your mentors, right? Well, I never met her, but, but she was a huge influence mm -hmm. and, you know, really looking to her and how she, she grabbed blues and rock and roll and, and did it. And I was like, there you go. I want to stand up and be that powerful and, and naked on stage, you know? Yeah. And first of all, I always say you were bald and beautiful because you looked, you might've been going through <laughs> chemo, but you were so beautiful. And what you didn't tell everybody was, I, I saw this in the interview, is that you showed up for rehearsal and you had just had maybe radiation that day, yeah. the day before. And yeah. during oh, the that performance. Day, that morning. Yeah. And, the, and during the performance, you were like, amazing. But you were almost, I mean, you were weak. You, yeah. you said that you almost passed out. And I would never have known that. I would never have known that. And you held that note. What's that? When you scream and we the held big it. scream at the end. Yeah. We did it longer, didn't we? Longer. Yeah, we did it longer than, than the, the regular, regular thing. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. 
Melissa, you crushed it, man. And it was like, it, and Rob Light, who's head of CAA, said top 10 performances ever at the Grammys, oh, ever. People wow. were going nuts. So everybody, you got to check that out. You know, that was pretty amazing. All right, so I grew up in a small town of 3,000 people. You grew up, Leavenworth is a small city. Yes. So I have a feeling your dad and mom didn't say, hey, Melissa, you want to be a rock star singer? Oh, God. I, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No. What I'm saying is like, I mean, obviously there was your purpose in life, your bliss, your deepest desires, your, your truth, your passion, whatever you want to call it. It has to come from here and not here. You were driven but it wasn't like you didn't have any mentors and there was no <laughs> manual and there was, there was no internet. There was no internet. There was nobody TikToking or. But you know what there was, buddy? You and I grew up in the 60s. Well, I, I don't know how old you are, but you, we grew oh, up. 60s. I'm a hundred years old. <laughs> in the 60s and 70s with that music, with those radio stations, with those records, with the performances on TV, with Ed Sullivan, with the Midnight Special, with all those times when those rock musicians came into our lives. And I lived for that. And then, then the opportunity started when I was 12 or 13 to play live music with the grown men. And my father and I would go to these bars and I would make, you know, 25 bucks a night, 50 bucks a night sometimes. And it was like I got to do it. So I got to practice and try and dream. And even though I wasn't really playing, we didn't, you know, play Led Zeppelin tunes. We played Conway Twitty tunes. But, you know, it was still live music in front of people. And I could work on that part of I could work on performing. I started to understand what songs were and what made a good song. And I just filled my days and nights with music. We, you know, we fall in love with it. We don't want to do anything but make music. There was just no turning back, and the opportunities kept presenting themselves on my path. So your dad was, like, really supportive, right? Oh, yeah. My mother was very worried. You know, I was, a, I mean, if my 13-year-old girl came to me and said she was going to go play some bars, I, I would be a little worried, too. <laughs> but my father went with me everywhere I went. That's so cool. I mean, you know, it's, one thing to be a guy, you know, and you're going into a bar when you're, you know, cause I, I started playing when I was in bars when I was young too, but you're a woman and you're in Kansas. It's not like you're in New York city or LA. You know? So there weren't a lot of women artists out there yet. There were some, but it was, it's pretty dominant, you know, with the male thing. So did that make it more challenging for you in any way? I never thought of it. I never thought that being a woman would inhibit me. I understood that there were not a lot. I saw a lot in country, but, you know, in rock, it was very limited. And, you know, I was, was a huge fan of Ricky Lee Jones, of of Linda Ronstadt, of, you know, of course, then Fleetwood Mac when they came out. And But, you know, Hart and, you know, Joan Jett and Pat Benatar. So we had these kind of groups, some. And I just, I didn't think, oh, that means I can't do it. And I really never felt it until we were trying to get my first record played on radio stations. And that was the first time I heard program directors go, well, I, you know, I'm sorry, we're already playing a woman. You know, like there was this rule, this unwritten rule that you could, you could only play one woman on the rock radio. You only have one song in rotation and you could never play two women songs back to back. And that's still something that yeah. is, 
you don't find that very often. There's still this, well, you can't play this woman and then the, this next woman. It was, it's a weird, weird, weird thing. Well, I mean, wh- when was that moment where you thought, oh, I can do this. This is happening. I mean, because, you know, we're all struggling. It's like, I remember when I saw the Beatles on TV, I said, what? What? Yeah. I said, mom, who are those guys? She says, they're the Beatles. I went, well, I want to play with the Beatles. Call them up. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, who do you call up? You know, so when did you go like, oh, I got this. I'm going to do this. Well, we we have our dreams and we keep that really close. It's like, no, you know, I don't want to just meet these people. I want to perform with these people. You know, I want to be side by side with them. That was that's that deep dream that you don't dare tell anyone, you know, that that, you know, you just you just keep doing it. And it just keeps opening up. And it took for, I didn't get signed till I was 25. And my first record didn't come out till I was 27. And by then I had played for over 10 years in front of people, night after night after night. So I believed that I could do it. Now it was just, you know, doing it, you know, walk through the path. So I don't know if there was a time when I went, yes. Like it was just every day, a little bit more confidence. Yeah, well, that helps is is if you're moving along and it's just getting, you know, better and better that's you know we just oh oh i think i got this now maybe two years ago i started thinking i got this <laughs> maybe yeah. yeah you don't want to feel like i've totally got this because you want to be hungry you know yeah you want to do more in many ways i look at you as and you'll probably love this as patrick malone's and i'll tell you why i'll tell you why <laughs> tell me now, Pat, well i think look at myself as tom brady there you go yes Absolutely. And, and what these two people have is what you have. Okay, so you're the boss. You're the, the artist. So you're, you're the team leader. You know, you tell everybody what to do. But what makes them incredible is they're team players too. I mean, you're leading, but you bring everybody in. You motivate. That's what Patrick Mahomes and Brady does. And I got that confirmed about Brady last year. And I asked a center... 320-pound center for Denver Broncos. I went, is Tom Brady really that guy? And he went, yes. And what I'm talking about is these guys, that's why I call you Patrick Mahomes, you motivate everybody by setting an example in the way you talk to people, the way you treat everybody, you consider it. I've seen you. You speak your mind. You know what you want, but you're so kind. You make people feel like they belong. I mean, does that come natural to you? You are so sweet. Thank you very much. It's probably my favorite compliment ever <laughs> is that I'm like Patrick Mahomes. My first experience with bands were with these professional guys that they did it on the weekend, but they had played for years and there were there were like rules you had. You when anyone was soloing, you always turned and faced the artist. If the guitar player had a solo, everybody would look at the guitar player. There were just these little things that you did as a group in the 70s. And, you know, when we were just playing, you know, parents without partners dances and stuff or whatever, but but these were real paying gigs. And I learned from these guys, these these older fellas, and I, I learned how to be in a band, how musicians play together. Then I had years of playing solo where I really missed a band. So when I first got a band back together for my first record, I was like, okay, it was uh, Fritz Lewick and Kevin McCormick at that time, the drummer and the bass player. And, and we, 
we really, we played for years. And I realized that the things that I could hear in my guitar when I was singing, they could transform into more music. And you were the same too. You could get inside my head. Then I graduated up to you when we were finally playing arenas, huge arenas. And the more connected I am with my musicians, with these guys, then that bed of music, that tight car that I'm in of, of music, that song, I can then stand up and scream and holler out the, you know, convertible door at this music metaphor I've got going here, the car, but you guys were driving it. And, and if you understood and loved music as much as I did, which you did and, and John did and Mark and, you know, all the people we ever played with, if we all did that, then it's guaranteed that the audience is going to have a good time. And because I was able to give those audiences of 20, 30, 40, 100,000, give them that sort of performance. Well, 20, 30 years later, I'm still performing for those people and they come to have that experience. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that the live performance has always been my favorite and the place where I really put that togetherness. And it's got to be fun, too. So the fun things we used to have, the fun times we used to do, you know, you see people burning out, you see them just hating it. And you're like, oh, come on, you get to play music. Come on, you know, you yeah. love it, love it. And and so I surround myself with people like that. And you're definitely one of those. That's smart. I mean, teams win Super Bowls and World yeah. Series, not individuals. And that's what Patrick Mahomes and those guys see it. They go like, you can wait. see they're yeah, having a good time. It. Yeah, yeah. See, you know how to connect with people. And then you're great at communicating. So if you connect and communicate, now you can collaborate. You do that with the band, but you do with the audience because your audience, you're collaborating with them in a way because you're so sincere. They feel like they're doing it with you. That's what you were great at. That's what I'm saying. I mean, so I've worked with people, man. I don't feel like they're connecting with them and they're not connecting with me. And I'm like, what? It could be so much better. This is what you're great at. I've seen a lot of artists that, I mean, I'm not putting them down. They're just great artists and they make great music, but they like create their music in a bedroom, you know, by themselves with a computer. And it's very small. And I have, to this day, I've met a handful of artists that never performed live until they got up in front of, you know, 10,000 people. And that's got to be frightening, you know? And so their own insecurities are going to play out with, they feel like they have to control. And so that's why you get artists that just play to track, you know, and it's just, it's not, that's not live at all. It's just, it's different. I'm grateful. So grateful for the, ever the experience because I love it and I want to do it forever and ever. Well, that's good to hear. I love that because I can relate to that. I mean, what else are we going to do? I mean, this is fun. We can't do anything else. We're not good at anything. You can't do anything else. All you can do is play music and eat all of the food in catering and on the bus. We would go to sleep and the refrigerator would be full and we wake up and it would be empty because you got up in the middle of the night and ate all the food. We used to have to, well, it's because your metabolism is like crazy, but we used to put a sign saying, this is Kenny's food. You don't get to touch anything else. And also, we used to, when you get on the airplane and you would order a full <laughs> cherry pie every time we would get on the airplane. No, you ordered it. 
I just I, ate I ordered it. it for you. I ordered it for you. <laughs> yeah. a, a full cherry pie, man. You didn't. You wouldn't eat the whole pie, but you loved your cherry pie, man. Oh man, I love that cherry pie. That is the funniest thing. There'd be a cherry pie every night for me, and that that wouldn't probably be the first thing a dietitian or a doctor, <laughs> you know. Hey, you, know, you would burn it off, man. You would burn every ounce of that sugar. Well, our shows were like three hours long. And you did they not three stop. Hours long. No, no we break. Stop. There was one cool thing that we used to do where you would disappear. We'd be on the big stage, right? We'd disappear. It would be I Could Have Been You was the song. Oh, oh, it was. Okay, so yeah. check this out, everybody. So we're playing in arenas, okay? And all of a sudden we'd finish. And then, bam, a light would go on. And there was Melissa on a little stage back at the end of the arena. So suddenly, this is Melissa's idea. This is all about connecting and collaborating and communicating. All of a sudden, the people that didn't have the good seats had the best seats. And it just changed the energy. Because here you are in the back of the, of the auditorium. You've got the worst yeah. seats back there. And then you guys would play that outro to I Could Have Been yeah. You. And Stephen Gramont would put me in like the laundry cart and he'd roll yeah. me all the way out yeah. to the, the backstage and we'd get up and bam, and I'd do like a couple songs back there. But what I remember most is at the end of the show, we would do This War Is Over. Oh, and yeah. It, and I would leave the stage and then John would leave the stage and it would just be you and Mark and you would play this solo and you were up. We had a 10-foot stage, and then you were up on another huge riser. You were really high. And at the end of that, you would play the solo, and you would just kill it. You would kill it, kill it, kill it, kill it. And then you would jump up on your stool and jump over the drum set, not knocking it over. You would do like a splits over the drum yeah, set and split. land way down. I don't know how you didn't hurt yourself ever. And you would jump down and wave and run off the stage. It was just spectacular. Well, I don't do that anymore. I'll tell no, you <laughs> I don't do that anymore either. No, it's yeah. okay. But we did it in our past. But you know that satellite stage with a little stage? Then we would come on. We'd be walking down the hallways and they'd lift like a, on a big piece of plywood, like a teeny little drum set. And we'd play up there and then we'd have this gauntlet. Did you go through that gauntlet back yeah. to the main stage? Yeah, we would like put our we put our heads down. People ripping off your clothes. It was you know, crazy, they, dude. They'd be yep. ripping your clothes off. They were like <laughs> savages. Your 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 fans Rock were like, and roll. In, yeah, it was insane. rock and roll. <laughs> All right, so you know, I gotta ask you something about. I feel like a football player sometimes, and I wake up with aches and pains, <laughs> and I know that you. Well, I've seen something like you endorse the medical marijuana, the CBD, oh, yeah. CB, CBD, whatever it's CBD, called. CBD, yeah. So I've tried this stuff. It doesn't seem to work for me, probably because I put it on and then I go play the drums. So hello, it's like I probably should take a break. But does that <laughs> stuff really work? You know what I mean? It'd be like, just like taping your arm up and then doing what you just did to hurt your arm. <laughs> I mean. Well, you know what I've, I realized when I started getting up in my 40s, oh, if I'm going to do this, I really need to take care of myself. I mean, you can do pretty much what you want in your 20s and 30s, and, yeah. and it's not going to catch up with you till your 40s. And then, and then I was like, okay, I, it was actually after cancer, I really understood how much I needed to take care of my body. So I really looked at what I ate. When I ate, I had to give up after-show food. I haven't had after-show food in, you know, 20 years. <laughs> 
But then sleep, sleep became super important. And, you know, Stephen Gramont, my tour manager, is the is the guardian of my sleep, who never schedules anything within, you know, that would ever disrupt my sleep, except for maybe a flight home, which is fine. But sleep and food and routine and low stress, it's just really need to keep that. And things like, you know, now I got things like, oh, my my hands, my fingers, you know, and and just understanding stretching always you taught me that stretching before yeah. a show, man, you, you would get down there, yeah. you would do all oh, your yeah. yoga stuff, but just keeping yourself limber and then not tensing up. And, and then if something is, you know, chronically happening, looking at it going, okay, why is this, why is this one time I move this one way? Why is it, you know, doing that? And then just, you know, like an athlete, totally like an athlete, look at Tom Brady. How did he keep going into his forties? It was because he changed his diet sleep and food. It's really, really important to think of yourself like that. And and I look to athletes and what they have learned about their body to really guide me. And I, and I consider myself, although I don't you know look like an athlete, I consider myself an athlete in what I do every night and how to keep my voice and my body. And big part of it is being rested. Just that. Do you drink coffee at all? No, I don't. Yeah, see. I do. Look at that. Uh, So, and I love it, but I get interrupted sleep. I'll sleep like three or four hours and wake up. And I know it's because of coffee. And you know, I'm a vitamin junkie. So, you know that. But the thing is, is, yeah, damn, that's a tough thing for me to let go. And I really value sleep. That's the only, sleep is the only way you can repair your brain and your body. But did you use that? Do you get sore from playing? Sometimes. And yes, I do. A good cannabis topical is really nice. But it's all, you know, also find one that's got, a lot of other stuff in it that can help you. And I actually use cannabis to sleep. So that's a big part of the medicine for me is actually smoking or ingesting cannabis to get like a good eight hours of sleep every night. I get to try that because every time I've tried cannabis, I get the hangover. So I don't know if I'm a, but uh, maybe you could turn me on to what to take. Cause boy, I, I know the value of sleep, but I'm not doing it as good as I could. Yeah. That's what I'm There's saying. so many levels of cannabis and, yeah. and it's really a personal, personal, personal thing. You can't say this is going to do that. This has the, you know, with a lot of people, this does that, but everyone's really different. So you really have to, to try and see what fits you, whether, whether you're an indica kind of guy or sativa and how much and how much CBD and, you know, and, and just, just it's, it's because there's, there's nobody out there, working that out, we're kind of on our own to do it. All right. Well, I'm going to check it out. So I want to ask you one more thing. And that was like, okay, so you're at this point in your career, like we all are where we're at. Are you one of those people that say, okay, I want my legacy to be this, or this is what I'm going to do in five years. And this one I'm going to do in eight years. Or are you just, just going and you're digging life and just going with it? You know what? About 10 years ago, I kind of had a talk with myself of, Hey, Stop chasing things and comparing myself. And I really eased up a lot of stress when I stopped, you know, thinking, oh, I have to have a, you know, a top 10 album. I have to have Mm. all this stuff. I told myself I needed to look at what I'd done and realize that I have a great body of work. And I wanted to get more in love with playing and playing my music. So I started playing lead guitar 
And I don't know if you've seen no. me in, yeah, no. in the last 10 years. No. You got you no. got to come to a show because I don't even have a lead guitar player anymore. And I played what? with the best. I played what? with the best. Yes. Oh, yeah. So 10 Philip years Sace. ago, I said, oh, my God, Philip says John Shanks, Pete Thorne. I mean, the greatest. And Pete Thorne taught me so much about guitar playing and how to do it. So much he taught himself out of a job. And it makes me love my music all that more because there's certain, like Chrome Plated Heart is now like a a 15 minute jam on my electric 12 string. It's really, really fun. So I found new ways of exciting myself about my old music because I know I am blessed with five or six hit songs that everyone wants to hear every night. And I am fine doing that, you know? But I got to make the show interesting for me. So I, of course, every night's a different set list around those five or six songs. And I play a lot of guitar. I fell in love with it. It's like, I don't care if I'm playing to, you know, a a small club of 400 people or a festival with 100,000 people. Doesn't matter to me. I'm loving what I'm playing. And that's the key. When I start from there, then I can think, ooh, wouldn't it be nice to do this? Wouldn't it be nice to play here? And for the first time, I'm playing the Stagecoast Festival this year for the first time. Never played it. Like I've never played Bonnaroo and Coachella and all those. And so those are like, hey, I hope that someday that'll happen. But I'm not comparing and and getting all upset if I don't. I'm believing that if I keep loving what I'm doing every day and I just keep doing it, that you can't stop that feeling and that growth. And people are going to feel it and they're going to tell each other. And and that's just what's happened. I have my career is just flying now. It's so good. And all the things I ever wanted are happening. So I'm I'm having a blast. I love that because I remember Glenn Johns, this incredible producer, said to me, I was doing the Stevie Nicks record and we were having a glass of wine at the end of the session. He says, Kenny, <laughs> what is your five-year plan? I'm like, huh? I went, five-year plan? I felt like there was something wrong because I didn't have a five-year plan. No, you just got to do what you love. Yeah. Well, I said, what do you mean? He says, what haven't you done that you want to do? And I said, it's kind of in line with what you said. Well, I kind of dig what I'm doing. I just hope I keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And I just want want to be doing what I'm doing and loving it. (laughs) That's so cool. And whatever else comes along... Awesome. And, and yeah. there's been some great opportunities. I have had, I mean, I can just list off, oh my That's God, that was so much fun. This is so much fun. Well, this is going to be another one. Remember, I just got, I tried to get you to do a gig. And now, you're, and guess what? what? Now I know you play guitar. We're going to have to jam. But this yeah. time, I've never done that with your soloing. Oh. All right, so are you, uh, are you a Strat or a Telly? Are you like a Strat person? I am a Gibson Les Paul. Oh, come on. Marshall? You know what I've got? Pete Thorne got me into Sur, S-U-H-R. And, oh, yeah, I've seen it. And I have a hybrid of a cabinet and then of a, like a fractal sort of thing, but it's not that. Yeah. I still, I, I went fractal and I said, no, I need my pedals. And, oh, I'm just a, yeah. I'm a pedal head. I'm a John <laughs> Shanks. I have so many guitars now. You have, I have so many guitars and pedals. It's crazy. I, I, awesome. I went down that hole, man. I went into that rabbit hole. And it's so much fun. And so, but I, I really, I'm a Gibson girl. I have a couple of, of fenders, but the Gibson, I like, because I come from that sort of rhythm place, I, I like a full bodied guitar, yeah. but I've got a great Les Paul. I can't wait to play with you someday. I can't. Oh, dude. All right. Well, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So 
I guess Jimmy Page played Les Paul. That didn't hurt his career. Not right? at all. No, not at all. <laughs> well, God, that, that's so cool. I can't wait. I cannot wait to jam with you. So now uh, I'm going to be on you. And then when the next gig shows up, you, t- yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to be present because this is going to be exciting because that'll be something that I haven't done with you. Well, I mean, man, that. Thank you so much for doing this, man. This is like so cool. It's like I love just sitting to talking see. to you. I, this has just been a great opportunity to catch up with you. I love it. I know. I know. I love it. We kind of went through our history. And then we went into the future, what's going to happen. I know, yeah. And that's it. And here we are on the same page. We we just love what we're doing. So we're going to get together and do it more. It's unbelievable. So anyway, until I see you, uh, and I can't wait to see the Chiefs in the in the Super Bowl next year. I can't wait to see the Colts. Well, uh, in the playoffs? In I don't know. <laughs> you poor guy. You've had it hard. You've had it hard. Yeah. Last few years. Uh, yeah. I love you so much, Kenny. You're just you a, amazing. Thank you. Thank you, sweetheart. And I love you, too. And uh, we'll see you down the road. Amen, you will. Good luck with everything you're doing. <laughs>